a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about. Politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Deborah Craddock. Today on Deborah Craddock, we are going to get to know Howard Kahn. Howard is an ocular plastic surgeon, a laser cosmetic pioneer, a jazz guitarist, and one cool cat. Let's find out what makes Howard the accomplished gentleman that he is. How are you doing today, Howard? Great. Thank you, Debbie, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk with you as always. So we know you live in Laguna Beach now, but where are you originally from? Uh, I grew up in uh, southeastern Virginia, uh, Newport News, Hampton area. It was a peninsula. And who did you grow up with? Well, I had a mother, father, and an older brother who's uh, four and a half years older than me. And what was that home life like? I had a very stable family. My mother and father both came from large families, so I was the youngest on both sides with a lot of cousins, a lot of aunts, a lot of uncles. So I got a lot of hand-me-downs from um, the, the older uh, cousins. My father was an appliance dealer. He went to University of Virginia and graduated in uh, electrical engineering in 1934. You would think that uh, that would be a wonderful time for an electrical engineer because all these new appliances were, were being made. But 1934 was the Depression, so there were no jobs. And so he ended up uh, working in the local shipyard, which is still there, Newport News Shipyard and Drydock Company. But because he was Jewish, he was discriminated against, and he couldn't get any um, advancement. So he ended up going out and starting an appliance store, and he also had coin-operated washers and dryers that he rented out throughout the, the peninsula. And how did your family come to find their way to Virginia? I'm actually a fourth generation from that area. On my mother's side, my great-grandfather came over after the Civil War from um, the Austria area, and uh, he started a, a grocery store and then a ship chandler business, and then he had offices all over the world. In fact, my great-grandmother and grandfather would uh, go shopping in Europe, uh, and their pictures of their going back and forth to Europe to go shopping with the, the poor Jews in steerage coming, coming to the United States. 
and and then my um, grandmother married a a man who was a Russian immigrant that came over in the early 1900s, and he and his brother manufactured furniture in um, North Carolina. They actually started credit payment for furniture, which had never been done before. And so they were both extremely wealthy. So that side of the family was quite wealthy. My great-grandfather was on the first city council of Newport News. I had a great uncle who was mayor of the city during the 30s. Both fortunes were lost during the Depression. So when I came along, it was a, a low point in the finances of the family. Well, it's quite remarkable that Jews at that time could reach such high office in yeah, these, in these yes. companies. You're right. It was a it was a very unusual place because it it was not like the rural South. Uh, it was the rural South when when I was growing up, the people were extremely prejudiced. Uh, you know, five minutes outside the city, it, it was a different story. But the the Jews were accepted there. On my father's side, uh, his father came over uh, from Russia in the early 1900s. Most of my father's brothers went to college, and one was a very celebrated basketball coach for the high school and a track coach. So the, the Jews were very well accepted to a point right. at that time. If, if you wanted to date their daughters, that was a different story. <laughs> <laughs> were politics ever discussed in your family, or did politics play a role at all? L- looking back at, at my life at that time, I mean, it should be filmed in black and white because there was such a separation of the races back then. The only contact that we had where we had a, a, a black maid, I'm not sure what the term would be today, and my father had many black employees who drove the trucks, delivered the appliances, repaired the appliances. During uh, Christmas time, my mother and father would always have a party for the employees and all the white and the black employees would be, you know, mingling and drinking together, uh, which is would be just unheard of uh, during that time. So then would you say they were very liberal-minded? Oh, extremely so. And what about religion in your home? Yeah, my great-grandfather formed the first conservative uh, synagogue in the area. My father's side was Orthodox. So when we were growing up early, we were Orthodox, but then my mother didn't like the Orthodox shul because it was all in Hebrew, and the women were separated physically. So we then moved to the conservative uh, temple. But we observed all the Jewish holidays, you know, and when when I was in elementary school, uh, there were only maybe a couple Jews in the whole elementary school. So that had its issues, you know. You started playing music in elementary school, where you'd play at parties, dry cleaner openings, dime a dance dance halls. Were those paid gigs? Well, some of them were. I started playing guitar when I was seven, and my older brother Steve uh, played the guitar, and I wanted to play like him. Uh, And I begged my parents for about a year before they'd let me play. They rented a guitar because they weren't sure I was going to stick with it. We had these 1953 uh, Gibson guitars with a little Gibson amplifier. And um, we played some high school, uh, well, no, at that point it was elementary school gigs. There was an amusement park at Buckaroo Beach in Hampton. We played 
there, and we got paid, I think, $5 for the whole band. Uh, that was a lot back then. <laughs> it, well, it was, since you know, nice. cooks were a nickel, so that was, that was significant money. And we played in front of my, my father's appliance store. He, he was a big promoter, and he had all kinds of sales. One was uh, the Hog Wild sale, where he had actually had a, a hog chained to the front of the store, and there was a contest to guess the weight of the hog. <laughs> and, and so we would play out there, and it, we actually stopped traffic in those days. But it was a lot of fun. So he was a good promoter. Yeah. So you started playing these gigs, and what style of music were you playing at that time? Well, this was 1954, so it was the early days of, of rock and roll. And so um, I quickly figured out the most common chord changes for 95% of the rock songs. And my brother would listen to the lyrics on the radio and write down the lyrics. So between the two of us, he would sing and I would teach him the chord changes to these songs. So we did Little Richard, Elvis, Bill Haley, um, Gene Vincent, all the stuff that Lee Rocker <laughs> plays on steroids now. And in high school, and this was 1960s before integration in Virginia, you put your own band together, and the band included a black student. So tell us how that played out. The thing about music is it brings people together that they would never in a million years be together. And so I had this fantastic black drummer. He was an older guy, and uh, sometimes he showed for, up for the gig, sometimes he didn't. One time we, we were playing at a prom in Warwick, Virginia, and the band set up, and the powers to be said, well, you can't play because there's a black guy in, in the band. He said, you, you either get rid of the black guy or you don't play. I said, great, we don't play. I told the guy, pack it up, let's get out of here. And he said, wait, 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 wait. So we ended up playing the gig, and the world didn't come to end, and that, that was that. At the same time, you're finding your passion or your innate ability for the medical and scientific field. I see that you are selected for a summer course in biochemistry while you're in high school, and then you win a state science fair contest at the University of Virginia. And while you're, I believe, is it high school? You are doing cancer research there? Well, yeah. Um, I, I picked up a bunch of um, rats from a little college in southwest Virginia where they had this idea, the government had this idea to teach um, high school students biochemistry because there was this big uh, race in science against the Russians at the time. And it, it actually was not a good program because the children were too immature to be away from their parents and to be learning this sort of thing. And that's what resulted in the science project where I ended up at University of Virginia. I walked into a um, the medical school and there was a um, cancer research lab. I met the director of the lab. We talked and I ended up working with him all the summers when I was in college. And I really learned how to do research working in that lab. And was it an easy path for a young Jewish man to get into college? Well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, you should say that. I, I had a lot of assets applying to college uh, because I was successful in science fairs, and I was an exchange student in Mexico, and I had the guitar thing also. 
Interestingly, I later heard uh, from the principal of my high school called, and they wanted to know what was my mother's maiden name. Years later, I realized what that was all about. Amherst was really a totally wonderful, amazing place. Uh, There was really no religion there. The only religion experience I had was uh, I played at a Hillel mixer at the Smith College one weekend with a group called the Four Skins. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And Amherst is where you begin your university, your first stepping stone. And then I see from Amherst, you then go to medical school. Yeah. And at the time, there was a quota on how many Jewish students they would accept into certain schools. How did you surmount that? When you think back, it's just insane. There was not only a quota with with Jews, there was a quota with women. And there were only three women in my class of 78, which is just unbelievable. Because right now, there are more than half of the slots in medical school are women. And if it were purely um, a merit system, it would be all women, probably. So it wasn't just Jews, they, but it was mainly a lot of white guys. This was University of Virginia, where I had done all that research. I later heard the, the gentleman with whom I did research for all those summers, it just so happened he was on the uh, admissions committee the year I was applying to medical school. He later told me that when my name came up, my grades were good, but the board said, well, we already have enough Jews this year. And he spoke up and said, but I know him very well. We worked for several years together. And so that, that's how crazy things are. It's so much of his luck, you know? Where is it that you transition from this kid who's playing in elementary school, who then plays throughout high school, who then transitions from that early rock and roll to jazz? And what, did, what doors did that open for you? There were these um, black radio stations I would listen to at night, and that's what they were playing, rhythm and blues. And it, and it, and it was just much more interesting chord changes and much more interesting rhythm. So that's how I got into rhythm and blues. And then the entryway to jazz is often from a rhythm and blues background, at least it was back then when I was learning. So I started playing jazz late high school. Then I really got into it in college. I played with some great musicians. And then the Amherst Jazz Orchestra, uh, they played arrangements from the Berkeley School. So that's how I got into playing jazz. And so while you're in Amherst, you're in the orchestra, then you move on to medical school. And what are you doing musically while you're in medical school? Yeah, well, in medical school, um, the first week there was a a medical school fraternity, if you can imagine. They had a party and there was a, a local black rhythm and blues group that was playing there. So I had my guitar in the car, and I asked if I could sit in, and I sat in, and and we just clicked, and so they hired me. And so 
for the first uh, probably year and a half, I played gigs on the weekend with this black group from 10 to 2. And what type of medicine are you pursuing? I, I liked everything in, in medicine. Uh, in my first clinical rotation was pediatrics. I liked that. My next was surgery. I really liked that. And so I became interested in, in pediatric surgery, and that's really what I wanted to do. And so um, Was that just out of a concern for children or something well, you wanted Well, actually, to- more like I like small things. I, I like kind of intricate surgeries. It was like the kind of challenge of, of operating on something really small and difficult. And to be a pediatric surgeon, you have to do a general surgery residency. So I, I did the general surgery. And then right when I started that path, amniocentesis came in and abortions became legalized. And so here we are, the pendulum has swung. Now they're not legal in a lot of places. And so... For those two reasons, there were fewer children being born with congenital anomalies because the amniocentesis picked up the uh, anomalies. And if a mother had the misfortune of having a child with an anomaly, it could be aborted. And so I could see that there were going to be fewer children being born with congenital anomalies. What a wonderful thing, I feel, to not have to bring suffering into the world if you can totally avoid that. Absolutely. And what year was that? So I started my my internship in 1973. I think uh, Roe v. Wade must have been about that same time. You're working with children, and then what happened? Uh, after three years of, of the general surgery, I went into the, the lab of uh, Judah Folkman, who was um, head of uh, pediatric surgery at Children's Hospital in Boston. And Folkman's interest was in curing cancer. And his pediatric cancer? Well, just, just cancer, cancer in general. And his approach was to block the blood vessel growth to tumors, to starve the tumor. It's called anti-angiogenesis. It's a whole field that he created. And we were using the rabbit cornea as a model to measure blood vessel growth to tumors and to implant various uh, chemicals to block the blood vessels growing to the tumor. So I was using the slit lamp and looking at rabbit corneas, and I became interested in uh, ophthalmology. And at that time, I decided to go into ophthalmology. You decide you want to become this ocular surgeon? Yeah, I knew I wanted to do something with surgery. And and, um, during that period, before I started my ophthalmology residency, every Sunday I would go to the uh, Mass Ear and practice using the microscope to operate on um, rabbit corneas. So they gave me some rabbits to practice on, basically. So I, I owe a great debt to uh, rabbits. So I learned how to basically use a microscope. So that was very valuable, just going into ophthalmology. Let's go back for a second. When you're in, because I know you're playing music all the way through. I played a little, I didn't play that much during most of the 70s because after a year and a half of medical school with playing gigs at night uh, and studying during the day, I decided I better take medicine serious or <laughs> I wouldn't be a very good doctor. So I, I bailed from the rhythm and blues band and I played very little during the 70s. Uh, it, it wasn't until I came to LA that I really started playing again, which would be in the uh, early 80s. So you're playing music then up until you're in the early stages of medical school yes. and you're doing, you're staying up late to work in the emergency room, did I hear? 
There, there was this, this one kind of a collision of those worlds happened as a second-year medical student. I was working in uh, the emergency room, and I had worked all day, and I had a gig to play that night. And uh, I asked the resident if I could go for dinner. This was about 10 o'clock at night. He says, oh, yeah, go for dinner, take your time. So I ran to the gig, and I played in this black nightclub, and the gig ended early because there was a knife fight on the, on the floor, the dance floor. So then I went back to the emergency room, and the place was a complete madhouse. I don't think the resident even knew I was gone for all those hours. And, and he said, okay, you're back. There's a guy over there. He's got a, a knife wound across his neck. Sew him up, sew him up. I said, well, I never sewed anybody up before. He said, well, I'll show you how to do the first stitch. By the time you get to the end, you'll know how to sew. <laughs> And so I was sawing up this guy, and he looked up at me, and he said, oh, you're the white guy in the band. (laughs) At which point in your upbringing do schools become integrated? My schools were segregated up until my senior year in, in high school, 64 to 65. I saw that your mother was a champion of integration when that came to be, and uh, spoke at PTA meetings, and and would at some point tutor inner-city students to teach them how to read? Yes. That's wonderful. So was she just always an open-minded, loving person? Yeah, always. She, she was a big reader. And, and um, you know, my mother came from this wealthy family, and she was a really smart lady. She didn't finish college because the family ran out of money. After my father died, she ended up going back to... Uh, the local college and getting her degree, but she was she was always reading all the time, and so it's kind of hard to be uh, prejudiced if you're uh, educated and you read all the time. Right, and how do you feel about the current state of affairs right now in America with hatred of the other and again, turning back the clock on equal rights and you know anti-Semitism and anti-black and anti-immigrant. How does, that, how does that make you feel, Howard? It reminds me very much of uh, my childhood growing up in Virginia because, as I expressed to you, I had an idyllic community where I lived. There was a shipyard there, and then NASA was in the same community. Uh, and so there were a lot of engineers and very educated people that lived in my town, and thus they had, you know, educated, smart kids who I went to school with. But... Two minutes outside of the area, it was like the Deep South. There, there's always been this uh, separation of people who are educated and are intolerant versus uneducated and intolerant. What's happening today is they just have a voice. And I think uh, with Trump coming, taking advantage of these, these people, uh, it's just unleashed terrible uh, prejudice that's in her face every day. I think it was always there. And just it got stage and light in the last few years. Um, and how did you feel about affirmative action? Did you feel like that took something away from you to benefit others, or were you a proponent of that? I think it was absolutely necessary to give people a leg up where they've had this um, systemic uh, economic discrimination for so many years. I don't have a problem with that at all. In fact, I was fortunate enough to go to a really good college, and then 
I had no interest in uh, my children going to that school because they already had a leg up because uh, they all had the ability to go to good schools and they didn't need that. So I think that's all fine. Now you're a doctor. Where do you take it from there? Well, I always wanted to live in uh, California. And um, my first job was at White Memorial Medical Center in East L.A. I taught in the, the residence there, uh, ocular plastic, also cornea surgery. And it was there that I operated on uh, my wife's father. He had droopy eyelids, which I repaired. Then he arranged for me to meet his daughter, and then I fell in love with his daughter, Rita. Then we got married, and I was living on the west side of L.A., and then we have two young children together, and we um, couldn't get them into decent schools, and Rita had lived in Laguna since the 70s. And so we moved to Laguna so the kids could go to the public schools here, and we've been here ever since. I'm speaking of your wife. How long have you guys been married? We uh, have been together since 83. We were married in 84, so 39 years. So tell me a little bit about that journey. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Rita and I met in 83, and we basically knew we wanted to be together forever. It was, like, really instantaneous. I was living in um, Brentwood, and uh, Rita was in uh, Laguna Beach, and we'd meet on the weekends, and sometimes we'd meet at the Holiday Inn in Long Beach in in the middle of the week because we couldn't stand being away from each other. And um, we've just had a tremendously happy marriage together. Rita was not expecting to have children, but we ended up having two together, a boy and a girl that were both fantastic. We've been in the same house uh, for about... 30 years and uh, have a very stable marriage and I totally trust her and she's uh, really saved my life on uh, many occasions and I try to help her every way I can. And now you are a grandfather. Yes. Tell me what it's like to be a grandfather. Well, uh, our son Elliot, he has uh, twins and then our daughter Lisa just had a baby. Just to see them evolve was absolutely amazing. Do your kids have any musical talents? Brad and I share uh, a great interest in jazz. And Brad is your son from a prior marriage? Yes. He has a really encyclopedic knowledge of uh, rhythm and blues and jazz and so we, we share a lot of interest in that, although he, he doesn't play. Well, I have a question about Brad now that we brought Brad into the um, story here. Mm-hmm. Brad is biracial. Yeah. And your first wife was a woman of color. Yeah. I wanted to talk about it because he is biracial and because there is so many challenges that I hear about with biracial kids. They don't feel like they're white. They don't feel like they're black. Has he experienced any of that, any discrimination or, you know, any any feeling well, like an I'm, outcast at all? I'm sure he has. He doesn't he doesn't really talk about it very much, you know. He has such a personality that he can kind of get along with anybody. So I didn't know if even just as a kid growing up, if he had ever encountered anything where he had to question his identity or come to you and say, Dad, am I black? Am I white? Um, do I fit in? I know that for some people today, if you're not white, seems like there's a, a contingent of society that then label you other. And um, I didn't know if you know there were any ramifications. It was plenty early. I mean, we were. it was rare to have a, a mixed marriage. How do you 
or do you feel anything about the political landscape in America right now? I'm really uh, optimistic. I've just noticed the pendulum is always swinging uh, back and forth. And it seems like the American people always kind of end up going more toward the center. Uh, I, I don't think they want an extremely uh, liberal government, uh, but I'm not. Sh- but they also don't want this kind of uh, anarchistic government either. So I think things will get better. I also wanted to ask you how you see our country, say, four to six years down the road. Well, I'd like to be alive four to six years <laughs> down, down, down the line. Um, well, I think it takes money to make it in this, this society. Fortunately, my, my children are all educated. I think the best thing you can do is give your kids a, a good education and support their whatever interests they have. But I think you can insulate yourself to a lot of the problems with wealth. In contrast, um, without it, life can be miserable. The country, I don't see it getting any better in that regard. If you're poor, it's, it's just a horrible place to be. And it, at least you can get around a lot of the rough edges by living in a safe community and sending your kids to good schools. And that takes money, unfortunately. And that's just the reality of this country. So for the greater good, we really need to do our part, I believe, as people who can make a difference and can provide some sort of outreach, which is why I'm a fan of, of giving people, you know, easy access to education, easy access to medication, easy access to mental health resources. The more I'm speaking to people, the more I'm realizing that mental health is paramount in this picture of our country's greatness. Mental health and education to further our country. And I love talking to you because you are one highly educated man. (laughs) And tell us what you're doing now that you are no longer practicing medicine. You're spending most of your time doing. Well, uh, my favorite thing is, is just to hang around with my wife. That's what I enjoy more than anything else. We get up in the morning, we have coffee together, we have a bunch of laughs. We do some traveling, but uh, we mainly spend our time seeing our grandchildren at this point and our children, kind of doing a circuit with them. And um, I'm playing with a jazz group, really. We play some gigs during the um, winter, but mainly in the summer in Laguna Beach. Uh, Piano, bass, guitar, drum, and that's really a lot of fun. And I play every day and I'm constantly uh, trying to learn new songs, new music, and try to understand uh, jazz better. Awesome. Um, I'm so glad that you came here to be with us today. It's an honor to have you and to share this time with you. And is there anything that you are passionate about? Is there any sort of charity or some sort of resource that you'd like to share with our listeners? Our big charity now is the um, City of Hope which is a uh, cancer hospital in Duarte, and they have branches uh, all over California now. They have a wonderful um, caring attitude toward the patients, and they have great doctors there. And we also uh, support an organization called PANCAN, which is an uh, education organization for uh, pancreatic cancer. 
So before I let you go, since you mentioned pancreatic cancer, tell me your connection to that disease. Two years ago, I started having symptoms of pancreatitis and jaundice, and I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in May of two years ago. And I underwent surgery and chemotherapy, and it was caught early, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm cured, but I have to go through scans and blood tests every every few weeks. What is the feeling that one has when a doctor says to you, you have cancer? I just have to speak personally. My mother had pancreatic cancer, and my mother-in-law also had pancreatic cancer. So it's been very much part of our kind of family history. So when I first had the first episode of pancreatitis, I, I felt like probably had pancreatic cancer. So for me, that was the uh, kind of the signal. But uh, I, I, I tend to be optimistic. I, I just have to push for the, the most aggressive therapy that, that's available and think positively and uh, visualize positive events that I want to attend in the future, such as my grandson's bar mitzvah and uh, trips with Rita. So Visualization. My father was diagnosed with lung cancer, and I remember him telling me, first, he was filled with dread. He was filled with fear. He cried. And then he said, I am going to get to the other side of this. And he credits visualizing the things that he wanted to do on the horizon beyond the cancer for bringing him through to the other side. That and, of course, fine Western medicine. Um, So I love that you're looking always ahead, I think, and I don't know, but would you agree that that's maybe one of the things that brought you through this? Absolutely. Uh, You know, that's something, one of the techniques I learned from Rita that she created a vision board. So she put pictures up of people on a Greek cruise and right in the middle of the chemotherapy when it was unclear which way I was going to go, we booked a Greek cruise. So we actually, two months after the chemo, maybe it was a month after the chemo, we went on a Greek cruise. And so we were the people on the vision board. Uh, And so we also have little uh, sayings uh, in our bathroom mirror, uh, I, Howard Kahn, am healthy and cancer-free, and that was written a couple of years ago. So I think that visualization, I think that's a very important technique. Well, thank you for sharing that because I know you're not alone. I know there's a lot of people, and, and I, have a, I have one in my family struggling with cancer, and I think that's very helpful information. So I appreciate you again. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I wish you great success with your program. This episode of Deborah Craddock was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar, for making me sound good. 
Our amazing music was performed by Amy Nelson and Kathy Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at Deborah Craddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock. Like Democratic. Until next time. Political is